Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue in our journey through this book, the most personal and intimate of all of Paul's letters. And uh, this morning we want to look at the subject matter of the joys and sorrows of ministry. The first half of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, so I'll ask you to uh, keep your Bibles open there. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, They're working together with him. Then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have as your children to be ministers of the gospel, to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of how the Lord Jesus himself said, if a man wants to be great, he must be a servant and the last of all. Lord, we pray that you would raise up servants today. God, we know that serving Christ is not always the easiest path that we could choose. Not only are we just faced with the same trials and temptations as everyone else living in a fallen world, but we have an enemy. But God, we're so grateful that we also have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We pray for His wisdom and His strength and His peace and His comfort and His anointing upon our lives. That the world might see a difference in us. God, I pray for those this hour who may not as of yet be in your fold. That you would use the preaching of your word to stir faith and repentance in them. 
that they would look to Christ for salvation. Lord, those who may be complacent or lukewarm, we pray that you would stir their hearts and once again renew that love that perhaps they had at first. Have your perfect way and will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Simeon is the man who is known for almost single-handedly bringing the evangelical resurgence to England in the 18th century. He was fellow of King's College of Cambridge and he became the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. And he preached there for 50 years. Now, for the first 10 years of his ministry, his unhappy parishioners went so far as to chain their pews closed. You remember how in olden days they had rented pews. And the ends of the pew caps were lockable doors. And they were so unhappy with this ministry there, they locked the doors of the pews so that anybody who attended would have to stand up in the aisles. But Simeon persevered. His 21 volumes of sermons set the standard for preaching in the following generations. His Friday night teas were used to disciple a whole new generation of preachers. Three times he was invited to give the university lectures. And when Simeon died, one of his obituaries carried this remembrance of him. It it said, and I quote, And after having urged all his hearers to accept the pro-offered mercy, he reminded them that there were those present to whom he had preached Christ for more than 30 years. But they continued indifferent to the Savior's love. And pursuing this train of exposition for some time he at length became overpowered by his feeling and he sank down on the pulpit and burst into a flood of tears end of quote folks what a beautiful testimony of somebody's life who lived to be a servant of Christ and who lived to preach the gospel now as we look at 2 Corinthians 6 this morning in the first half of, the same, uh, of this chapter, we see the same thing. A beautiful moving testimony of the life and witness of the Apostle Paul. Now we're reminded here that service to Christ is not always easy. 2 Corinthians 5 told us we are ambassadors for Christ. It is a wonderful privilege to be an ambassador for Christ, but it is not always an easy task. A minister of the gospel can be one of the most loved and respected of men, uh, and at the same time, one of the most hated and despised. You see, to those who love the message that he preaches, he's loved and respected. They respect him for the sake of the gospel. 
But to those who reject the gospel message and even hate the Christian gospel, the messenger, the servant of Christ who stands for Christ can be despised and ridiculed. Because to them his voice is a a voice of agitation and irritation. It's kind of like what King Ahab said of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Uh, Ahab and, and, and Jezebel had brought great trouble to the land of Israel. And yet when Ahab saw Elijah, you remember how he identified Elijah? He said, where have you come from, O man of God, you troubler of Israel? When in fact Ahab was the troubler. It was the same with the Lord Jesus. He was welcomed into the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the multitudes flocked to him and they welcomed him. And yet at the same time, he was a despised man in the eyes of the religious leaders. Folks, we are reminded of what Paul's already said in 2 Corinthians 2. To some, you and I are a fragrance of life. As we share the gospel. We are a fragrance of life to those who believe. But Paul turns around and says to those who do not believe. We are the fragrance of death. A fragrance of life to some. A fragrance of death to others. Jesus said in John 15. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be surprised if the world despises you. Know that it despised me first. And the servant is not greater than the master. Paul was both loved and despised at Corinth. Now what we see here is the genuine plea of a a servant of God. That people would believe the gospel that he preaches. That they would join together in laboring with him in the work for the sake of Christ. Because souls hang in the balance. Let's see how he develops this. First of all I want you to notice with me the plea. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says working together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I'd listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. What Paul is about to urge upon them, he does so as a servant of Christ. He's not alone in this endeavor. Paul points out that he is working together with God. The Greek word is soon ergeo. Ergeo meaning to labor, to work, and soon being to to labor together with. Together with. And so together with God we labor in the gospel field. That's how Paul described his life. And he never forgot this. And you and I don't need to forget this either. We need to remember the words of the Lord Jesus at the end of the Great Commission after he had just told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're never alone. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I planted... Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. 
Now, folks, there's grace in this. I think of what Paul said about his own life in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Remember how he, dis- uh, how he described his life there? That he was the chief of all sinners. He had persecuted the church. He had killed servants of God. He had put them in prison. But he said, I was shown mercy by God because what I did, I did in ignorance. Paul knew that he had been a recipient of God's grace and mercy. And because of that, he is one sinner making his plea to other sinners. And what is that plea? Look again at at verse 1, the the last part of verse 1 here. He appeals to them, he makes a plea to them that they would not receive the grace of God in vain. You see, there were those in the Corinthian congregation who were acting the way they were acting because I believe Paul was convinced some of them were still unregenerate. They had been recipients of the ministry of the word. I mean, just think about the Apostle Paul being your teacher. The Apostle Paul had been the one who had started the work there, planted a congregation and sown the seed of the word of God. And there were those who had listened and nonetheless they were unregenerate. Hearing alone does not bring about conversion. And so in a sense, they were receiving the grace of God in vain. They were hearing the message of grace and not appropriating it. And then also there were those in the congregation who were saved, and yet they were babes in Christ. They were not growing. And they were among those who were were backbiting and all the division that there was at at Corinth. They were not growing in Christ-likeness. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says of them, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you receive a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They were like those among the Galatian congregations to who Paul wrote. Remember what he said in chapter 1 of them? He said, I marvel, I'm astonished that you so soon have moved away from the gospel to turn to another gospel which in reality is not a gospel at all. And he said, if anybody comes to you preaching a gospel other than the one we preached of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, let him be accursed. It was the same way at Corinth. Some of them there were willing to accept any message and embrace any kind of gospel, even if it wasn't the real gospel. Folks, we've got to realize the importance of hearing the message and doing something with it. What a shame to stand before the Lord as those in 1 Corinthians 3 and be saved, but your life's testimony is burned up, wood, hay, and stubble. 
We've got to realize the offer of God. Look at the offer of God that he quotes here in verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time I've listened to you and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's quoting there from Isaiah 49, 8. God saw the misery of his people and, and he answered, he extended his grace to the Israelites. And Paul's saying he's doing that now again. Remember in the book of Isaiah, he says God, God prophesied, uh, 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 promised a son, uh, 714 of, uh, of the book of Isaiah. The, the word of God says, the, behold the virgin shall be with child. And in Isaiah 9, it talks about his birth. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What Isaiah was saying to his people was that God was going to send them a Savior. God was going to send them a Savior at a favorable time. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, do you not understand that today is that day? Today is that day that God has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And Paul is saying essentially, this is the message that I have been preaching to you, that we live at that time in human history. We live under the new covenant. We have a Savior. And what he's doing is, is saying, because of that, behold, the day is the day of salvation. In a favorable time, God has listened to us and, and helped us. And so what do we need to do? We need to accept the gospel message and then live for it. It's a reminder to us today on this side of the cross what the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. And because of that, like he said in Romans 12, our lives need to be a living sacrifice, wholly devoted to God. I wonder if it could be that I'm preaching to somebody today who has received the grace of God in vain. You've heard the message so many times, it's almost like you're inoculated against it. It never takes root. I'd like to share with you one more time what that message is. What is the message of grace that he says that we dare not receive in vain? Well, you look back at, at verse 21 of the previous chapter, chapter 5, and probably one of the most single important verses in the whole entire Bible. In fact, if you really wrap your mind around 2 Corinthians 5.21, you essentially understand the gospel message. What is that message? He, he says there in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As the Bible points out in Romans chapter 5, the entire human race was plunged into sin at Adam's fall. The fall of man's recorded in Genesis 3. The Bible says, now of man there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that is death, physical and spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. 
And what does man do? Man comes along and man says, you know what, I'm going I'm to clean up my life and I'm going to do better. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to be righteous. The Bible says there is none righteous. Oh, you can be righteous when you compare yourself to other men, but other men are not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. Jesus Christ is the sinless, perfect Son of the living God. The truth of the matter is, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as the Bible says in Isaiah, all of our righteousnesses, it's plural... All of our righteousnesses, if we could add them up one by one, all of our good deeds, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I don't want to be too graphic here, but what's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about those rags that women would use in their monthly cycle. When they're all used up. All of our righteousnesses are as those filthy menstrual cloths. That's how the Bible is describing all of our good deeds. And so if you think you can get to heaven by your righteousness or good deeds, the Bible says it'll never, ever happen that way. In fact, in the book of Romans, the book of Romans says, if righteousness could have been achieved through the keeping of the law, then God would have surely sent a law. Here's where the Jewish people got it so wrong. Paul says in Romans 10, 1 through 3 of them, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. God set forth his standard of righteousness. They pushed it aside, said, no, we think we'd like to try to establish this way on our own. By trying to establish their own way of righteousness and reject God's way, they missed out on the gospel. They they were not saved. They were God's chosen people, the bloodline of Abraham, and yet they were lost. They were zealous. No question about their zeal for God. But they'd not achieve salvation. You can't achieve it. Only God can atone for sin. And that's what God did through the cross. In God's sovereign plan, He put His Son in your place for sin. He became sin for you on the cross. And that's exactly why Jesus cried out there from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment on the cross, Jesus became sin and he was estranged from the Father. Why in the world would God do this? God did it this way so that you and I would be the beneficiaries. It says he made the one who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when sinners acknowledge their complete desperation and hopelessness and look to Christ and Christ alone and are regenerated and repent and believe, they become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. All of our sin 
is credited to Christ. And His righteousness is credited to us. Tremendous exchange, isn't it? You see, folks, in the gospel, there's a heavenly exchange, a heavenly transaction that takes place. Christ takes my sin and I take his righteousness. That's what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. Now, do we understand that? You and I do nothing to achieve or earn our own salvation. Christ did it all. I'm afraid we're a bit semi-Pelagian in our theology. You remember the Pelagian controversy in church history. A man by the name of, of Pelagius taught that Adam's sin didn't really affect us. Every Pelagius uh, said that everybody comes into the world with a clean slate. Not what the Bible says. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. But in the Pelagian way of thinking, everybody comes into the world with the clean slate and it's kind of up to you. There's no curse for original sin and man. And so in that state, it's possible, Pelagius said, for you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and contribute to your salvation. You and God, that semi-Pelagian, a little offshoot of Pelagianism you and God working together can accomplish your salvation well it was condemned as heresy it's still heresy the Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins what can dead men do to contribute to their salvation nothing nothing The gospel is a gospel of grace. Grace. Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? The plea is not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's Paul's plea here. And it continues to be the plea of every preacher of the gospel. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. After this plea, I want you to notice he gives the priority. The priority of his life. Beginning there in verse 3, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. There's a number of places in the New Testament Paul gives the priority of his life. Let's talk about a couple of those before we come back to this one. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Remember what Paul said there about his priority in life? He says, we proclaim him. Admonishing every man so that we might present every man complete in Christ. We proclaim him. Philippians chapter 1. What did Paul say there in verse 21? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was the priority of his life. If I die, it's gain. I go to be with the Lord. If I stay, I'll live for Christ. 
and accomplish more for Him. And so for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those were two priorities in his life. He's all he's stated. And here in verse 3 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he gives yet one more priority of his life. And what is that priority of his life? He said not to cause any offense to the gospel. Not to be an obstacle. Not to be a stumbling block. That's what the word literally means here. The word offense means it refers to a stumbling block. He didn't want his life to be any type of stumbling block, any type of hindrance. Remember his discussions about this in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8? He discusses similar things in those two chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. He's talking there about his liberties and freedoms that he has in the gospel. But he he says, everything that is permissible for me is not necessarily profitable. And he goes into this whole discussion about the meat offered to idols. Because back then, and the meat offered to idols, after they got done with it in their pagan ceremonies, it'd be sent on down to to the butcher in town, the meat market. And they'd have a sale on, on the meat. And, and this was meat that had been offered to pagan idols. And Paul said, you know what? That idol means nothing to me. I can buy that meat. Hey, good stewardship. I can get a good deal on it. It's on sale. I can take it home, cook it up, and eat it. That idol it was sacrificed to means nothing to me. I don't worship that idol. He said, however, if by doing that, A weaker believer is with me, and boy, that just throws their faith for a loop. What did Paul say? He said, then I'm not going to buy that meat. I'm not going to do that. Am I free to do that? Yes, I'm free to do that. Absolutely free to do that. But am I going to do that? No, because by doing that, I might cause a brother to stumble. And so I'm not going to use my freedoms to hurt a brother in Christ. Folks, Paul was concerned that all those in the church would live by the same standard. The same standard of separation. That there would be biblical separation in a believer's life. That's why he's going to say later on in this chapter, Come out from among them and be ye separate. Next week I'm going to preach a message. Let us all file for separation. That's what Paul's talking about. There needs to be biblical separation in a believer's life. If if your life is no different from the man in the world, then your life is likely to be a stumbling block to somebody coming to Christ. The lost man will say, if that's what a Christian is, hey, I'm better than that. Why do I need Christ? Now, we know that's nothing more than an excuse that the lost man uses. But nonetheless, our priority ought to be not to give the lost man an excuse. 
The bottom line is, do you love the lost man more than you love your freedoms? Or do you want to hang on to your freedoms and liberty, even if that means the lost man never comes to faith in Christ? What's more important to you? What's your priority? We need to examine our lives so that our lives won't be a stumbling block to anybody. Instead of your life discrediting the ministry, pray that your life would show that you're a servant of Christ. Paul begins in verse 4 by saying, When you examine my life, as you'll see, there, there is none occasion for stumbling. In verses 4 and 10, he he gives this wonderful litany of his life's experiences. And some of those experiences were bad and some of them were good. We'll cover those individually in a moment. But whether good or bad experiences in his life, there was one thing that he always did. He always represented Christ well. You know who I think of this week? There's been a lot of talk, a lot of celebration about Billy Graham's 95th birthday. You know, one thing remarkable about his life, one thing so admirable about his life, I'm not aware that there's any scandal that's ever been attached to his name. What a wonderful testimony. Wonderful testimony. And that ought to be true of all of us. That ought to be our priority. And what's it going to look like when that's our priority? Well, in verse 4, he mentions hupomene. Hupomene that refers to patience, not a grin and bear it type attitude, but hupomene was that attitude that, that through, the, through the burdens of life, I'm able to hold up in all the trials and burdens of life. James 1 talks about all these trials that we go through. And it's not that we just grin and bear it, but God gives us strength. Hupomene, to bear up under it. It's a a patient endurance. And then he mentions the word afflictions. That word refers to suffering. Then hardships. That's a general word that just refers to how God's people have to live in a fallen world. And then the word calamities. This word refers to being closed in in a tight space. Any of you in here claustrophobic? Paul talks about calamities being pressed in on the other side by these hardships. And yet going on. Then beatings and imprisonments and riots. Mob, there was mob violence sometimes when Paul preached. Then he mentions labors and sleepless nights and hunger. You see in Paul's travels... They didn't have the the inns, the hotels like we have today. In fact, when they did have inns and hotels, a lot of times they were just places of ill repute. So if Christians didn't accept other Christians into their home, you'd have hunger, destitution, sleepless nights. Paul said he went through all of that for the sake of the gospel. Folks, could we say today that we treat the gospel, that it is a priority in our lives, a priority in our lives to live the way Paul's talking about here, that despite inconveniences in life, we press on for the sake of Christ. I'm afraid today we're too spoiled. Church was too hot. 
It's too cold. Preacher's sermon was too long. Some say, believe it or not, some say too short. All kind. I don't like that Sunday. I'm mad because I like this Sunday school classroom, not that one. You ought to hear some of the excuses those on the nominating committee hear sometimes. You want to work with kids or teach a class? No, because four months from now, I might want to take a weekend trip or something. You ought to hear some of the excuses they hear. Some of them almost be comical sometimes. Sometimes it's like, man, if I'm going to ever face any kind of inconvenience whatsoever for the sake of the gospel, I'm not going to be inconvenienced. We live in a day and time when people people have that attitude. I'm not going to be inconvenienced. And sadly, that's even crept into the church. Paul's priority in his life was that he put all personal preferences and likes and dislikes aside for the sake of the gospel. He goes on to mention some good things in his life. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, the weapons of righteousness. Paul's going to say later on in 2 Corinthians, he fights his battles not with the weapons of this world, but with the weapons God gives. Look at that paradox he talks about beginning in verse verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, slander and praise, we're treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. The paradox of the Christian life. Like what Jesus said, you want to have life? Give up your life to follow me and you'll have life. Save your life and you'll lose it. Paradox. And then he clo- look at how he closes in verse 11. We've spoken freely to you. He goes on to say, you know, we've just opened our lives and, and hearts open to you and, and just... Gone through everything for the sake of the gospel, ministering among you. Now we implore you to open wide to us. His life before them has been an open book. I want to give you some lessons before we close that I want you to see from this text. Lesson number one, Christian service is not for wimps. Christian service is not for wimps. Some are going to respond to the good news and they're going to thank you for being a faithful servant of Christ. Some are going to hate the good news and they're going to despise you for representing that. Get used to it. Have some thick skin. Second lesson, you are called to suffer. Do what, you say? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross. cross was an instrument of death and follow me. Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 12, that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You've got a cross to bear. Life's not always going to be easy. Ministry's not always going to be easy. You'll work with some sheep and some of them bite. they got sharp teeth. 
You're called to suffer. But a third lesson, God's grace will prove more than sufficient. God will bring joy to your life. There are joys and sorrows, but the joys of serving Christ always outnumber the sorrows. I wonder this morning, is there a chance that somebody in here needs to hear those words again? Do not receive the grace of God in vain. You've heard it a thousand times. You've heard it more than a thousand times. But your life has never been changed. You've never been born again. You need to see the urgency of the hour. As James 4 says, life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. None of us are even guaranteed the rest of today. Behold, today is the day of salvation. You need to come to Christ. Ask Christ to convert your soul, to regenerate your soul, to give you life. Life from the dead. Think about your life not being an offense of the gospel too. Is there something in your life that getting kind of close to that? You need to say, God, I need to deal with this. I don't want my life to be an offense, a hindrance to anybody else. Maybe something specifically God is bringing to your mind that could hurt your testimony. Deal with it. Don't hang on to personal preferences when somebody else's eternity could be at stake. And then remember, you do have a cross to carry. Are you willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? To be put out of the way out of your way and inconvenience for the sake of is there any suffering in your walk for Christ if there is this, that's not strange some people say I'm serving Christ why am I going through all this difficulty I, I heard somebody talk about that this week that since becoming a Christian all these difficulties had piled in that's not strange in fact if we name the name of Christ and there never is any hardship Then we need to examine, are we really following Christ? Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the blessing, the privilege, the opportunity of serving Christ. Being co-laborers in the gospel. Lord, we didn't do anything. We weren't co-laborers in regards to our salvation. That's purely your grace and your work. But once in the fold, you tell us that now we're to be co-laborers with God. May we be so. May our lives be clean and pure and holy. No offense to the gospel. May we pick up our cross and follow you. Speak to your people about that this morning. 
about the difficulties God's people have always experienced living for Christ in an upside-down world. And Lord, I do pray for that one this morning who needs to hear that plea not to receive the grace of God in vain. Lord, it wouldn't surprise me if there's not at least one in here today in that, in that boat. They've heard and heard and heard and heard and heard, and yet it's never taken root. No life change, no fruit. Lord, may they hear this appeal, this plea, one more time. And may your spirit work his work in their lives right now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.